everybody. I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. Welcome in, listeners. I hope that you guys enjoyed Israel Keys Part 1. We're going to continue that today. (laughs) (laughs) But first, I have an update on Carrie the doll. (laughs) (laughs) So my dad kindly reminded me that he never said that he didn't do it. He just avoided the question and danced around it while I freaked out. I came into my office like a couple days ago. Like at this point, it would have been like a month ago. But, well, not even a month ago. It was around like this Wednesday, which would have been like October 25th, I think. I came in. I came into my office. I'm like, I'm opening windows because it's finally cooled down and Satan's ass crack enough for me to actually like let a breeze in my house without like becoming the gal from like Terminator that's holding onto the fence roasting alive. (laughs) (laughs) I open my office window and I catch a glimpse of something blue in my bougainvillea and I'm like, what the hell is that? So I I look a little bit closer and I'm starting to see jewels. And about that time I scan up and I see a doll's arm reaching out at me. And when I tell you, I just kind of noped. I closed the blinds (laughs) to that window again. Like it was a freaking like (sighs) 80s horror comedy. I was just like, you know what? No, 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 no. Went walking back out front, called my parents. I'm like, there is another one. And my mom's like, are you kidding? And she's like playing along with it. And I started like ramping up like I usually do when I'm freaked out. And she couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, you guys did this to me, didn't you? You did this to me. She's like, yeah. Yeah, we did. We're surprised you didn't see the other ones that are around your property. I'm like, what other ones? Apparently there, there's another one on my back porch. When they had the time to do this that I wasn't paying attention to them, I have no idea. Probably while I was out and about doing other things with my mom. She was like, go sneak over and put those dolls in her backyard, Tommy. But you know what? My mom's not the mastermind behind this. My dad is because he's the one that purchased the dolls. I got a deal on them by telling the guy that it's a prank for my daughter and I should have known better when he came into the house and was kind of like smiling at me and taking it as like a joke. I should have known better. So there's your update on Carrie the doll and her friends. (laughs) Her friends. (laughs) It was a prank that my dad played on me. Happy Halloween to me. But yeah, that's that's the update that I have on that situation. They're gone now. He still had to pick them up and take them away because I don't like dolls and I didn't want to touch them. He's like, to better offer you like a peace of mind to your haunted theory, they're probably haunted. They've been sitting down at a thrift store for the better part of like three years. I'm like, oh, so you brought them to my house? Uh, Halloween gift right there. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some haunted dolls. <laughs> oh. oh, God. But anyways, that was that was a couple weeks ago. We, we just got around to recording that now because we've been recording ahead of time, if you guys haven't guessed already. But I hope that you guys are ready for Israel Keys today. Re, if you don't have any more banter, unfortunately, I got to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get to it. All right, here come the trigger warnings. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. episode, we will be discussing cases involving more than one of the following. Children, sexual assault, domestic violence, and suicide. As always, listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has a child who has been victimized, please call the proper authorities and look at missingkids.org or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline at 800-843-5600. 7-8 for more helpful resources. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-72 And if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, back to the show. Well, welcome back, everybody. I hope that... If you did stay, that you are ready for Israel Keys Part 2. In the last episode, we should have left you off with him being pulled over by Officer Henry and him basically being asked to exit his vehicle. Now, at the time, I didn't know this, but going back and looking through some things and kind of catching up to where we are now, apparently he did have a knife on him when he was pulled over and he was asked to place the item in either the back of his vehicle or the trunk of his vehicle. So I think that's an important note going forward that I may have skipped previously. So what, he had it like sitting in plain sight then? Mm Mm-hmm. From what I was seeing, 
Yeah. So wow. he was asked to put those somewhere safe, which are usually the trunk of your vehicle during a scene like this. So moving forward, just as a heads up, I have scoured over research for this, and most of my research is coming from the American Predator book by Maureen Callahan. But if I did happen to miss anything, please let me know. Email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. I'm more than happy to come in and make corrections next time. But we're going to go ahead and get started for today. So... Keyes stood by the front of his vehicle as Officer Henry ran plates, making sure that the car wasn't possibly linked to other traffic violations or crimes. The record was clean, not even a speeding ticket. Keyes, wow. Yeah. Keyes, at this point, seemed to be getting a little frustrated and asked the officer what the stop and removal from his vehicle was about, to which Henry clearly responded that they were looking into a kidnapping from Alaska. Keyes stated that he'd been in town for his sister's wedding and he'd been staying mostly in Wells, but decided to stay the night with his brother at the Quality Inn that evening. He then goes on to explain that his brothers are in from Maine for the wedding. To which, if you have any experience in like 911 calls or like interrogation, this should kind of trip a red flag. Because, as Henry noted, and many of us do, is that when individuals tell unrelated or unsolicited information to you on the topic that, like, was given, it's a key tell that this individual is not being honest. Hmm. Okay. So, for example, in 911 calls, when people say oh she fell but she was wearing blue slippers it's like what do the blue slippers matter here i see okay okay so henry then asks when keys got into town keys responded that he can only get a plane ticket out of anchorage to las vegas so he would either have to catch another connecting flight or he would have to drive he made the side comment that he wanted to show his daughter the grand canyon so he rented a car and drove to Texas from Las Vegas, taking I-40. The two of them arrived in Texas the previous Thursday, which would have been March 8th. Henry then asked Keyes about his daughter's whereabouts, to which Keyes said that she was in town already with his brother, going onwards to state that she was only 10 years old. So a lot of information coming from small questions. Yeah, definitely. Around this time, Rayburn and Ganaway arrived at the scene. Keyes took notice and asked Rayburn, does this have anything to do with the officer that drove through my parking lot last night? Rayburn knew nothing of this encounter and ignored the question, deciding to respond with one of his own. Did you stay at the Quality Inn last night? Keyes responded with yes, but the room is in my brother's name. I've been in and out for the last two days. Rayburn then asks when the car was rented. Keyes states it was rented last Thursday, the day after he and his daughter flew into Vegas. Ganaway at this point is walking around the car, casing the vehicle. She's looking in windows and trying to see if there's any identifying details on the car itself. She then follows up Rayburn's question, asking, how many states did you stop in and for how many days? 
According to Keyes, he had only stopped at the Hoover Dam and only for about an hour and a half at night to get some sleep before continuing. Ginaway then asked him how he paid for gas. Keyes responded with, I don't know, probably cash. To which Ganaway asked again, how did you pay for gas? Keyes responded with more frustration, probably cash. That seems like the kind of a question you'd know the answer to. Like, I've done plenty of traveling and road tripping, and it's never a question of how I paid. I mean, I guess, like, with some long trips, maybe I used different methods of payment across the trip. It wasn't always the same method of payment. But still, I could still tell you pretty reasonably, like, yeah, in the last few days, like, this was my main method of payment that I was using, you know, at least differentiating between, like, cash and card or anything like that. So saying Mm -hmm. probably cash, that just doesn't seem like he's telling the truth there. Yeah, and I mean, when I do road trips, like, sad story, but I never, like, use cash going to gas stations. It's always on card. So it's like, that's kind of weird, especially in 2012 when cards becoming more popular anyway. It's like, why are you using cash to pay for gas when you can just pay at the pump with a card? Yeah, I think I only know one person off the top of my head who I know, like, always pays cash um, as far as I'm aware uh, but everyone else that I know well, everybody I know pays card. And like you said, even in 2012, I definitely feel like card was still a much more common choice, probably. Because like you said, the convenience of it, not having to go in and wait in line and all that. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely is <laughs> interesting <laughs> that he would say cash in the first place and then saying probably cash. It's like people tend to have a preference of how they pay for things. So I think you know the answer to this question. <laughs> Yeah, then you don't have to guesstimate either. Like, is $20 going to be enough? Is this going to be enough? Like, yeah, it's a guessing yeah. game. And it's like, do I get the cash back after that? Or what happens to the leftover and blah, 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 blah. It's frustrating. But by now, Rayburn, who had been seeing this exchange take place, took an opportunity to ask Keys to verify his story by showing them his wallet. To which Keys becomes taken aback and responds with, You guys aren't searching anything. Am I under arrest? So, pausing there for a moment. Meanwhile, back in Alaska, Payne and his team are waiting for any possible news from the lower 48 having to deal with their suspect. Payne is going through the morning routine that many individuals do at 8 a.m. on a Monday. He's currently at another coffee kiosk from what I remember it being called. It was called Sugar Shack. And he's getting his skinny mocha, or as other FBI agents in the building used to call it, his fruit fruit drink, which, you know what? A skinny mocha is a good mocha, okay? Doesn't always have to be like straight black coffee. Sometimes you need the little extra boost in the morning. Yeah, I, I don't know about uh, criminal justice line of work, but I definitely feel like a lot of industries have a culture around coffee, <laughs> especially <laughs> if it's a more masculine line of work that I think if you're getting anything besides a black coffee or maybe like a coffee with just like a little bit of sugar and milk in it or something, then then it's considered a fruit free drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's only black coffee and donuts in this office. I hope you guys understand that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, God. But like Ree said, a lot of like cultures surround themselves around coffee. But if you're a regular (laughs) coffee addict like myself, sometimes you don't want to make that like 
additional like coffee at home, you want to go to a spot that like you recognize and that you're familiar with. And once you become regular with that spot, like people get to know you over time. And even coming from being a past barista myself, I knew a lot of my customers that came through drive through and came into the cafe and I knew them by name and they knew me by name. And these are thoughts that are also going through Payne's head that morning. He knew most of the girls that worked at this kiosk as they worked also with his wife. These girls had prospects of going to college or were already attending. And many of these girls were in the nursing programs that his wife was under too. Any of these girls could have been Samantha that night. And that just kept on repeating through his head. So while Payne is still waiting for his drink, he gets a call from an unknown number and decides to answer. It's Ganaway, who introduces herself and notifies him that they've just pulled over a person of interest in his case. Ganaway informs Payne about the information that we just ran through and notes in addition to that, she'd spotted a pair of white shoes in the car and a wad of cash that was rubber banded with red ink splattered across it. Now, if you're familiar with that type of ink or what happens during a bank robbery, this is the typical keynote that you would see with rigged explosive ink that triggers after an individual takes a lot of cash during a bank robbery. Oh, okay. So additionally to that, there are some maps in the vehicle with highlighted spots on them. Not so much in a directional pattern, but just like certain areas are highlighted. Ganaway then asks Payne what he would like to do, as Keyes is beginning to become more uncooperative and agitated by the ration of questions he's being asked for a routine traffic stop. Payne isn't fully sure of what to do at this point, since there isn't much evidence pointing to this being their guy, other than he's an Alaskan resident and has a questionable background story as to what he's doing in Texas. Additionally, at this time, Texas has an exemption to probable cause. So when it comes to searching the vehicle, there needs to be belief that there was a crime committed with it. This means that the decision Payne has to make needs to be unquestionable, or they're all going to be in trouble. His response to Ganaway was, I don't want to cut this guy loose without searching his car. It doesn't matter to me how you do it. And he hung up. After 20 long, anxiety-filled minutes, Payne's phone rang again. We've got him. This is your guy, Ganaway announced. And when asked what they had, she said, enough. Now, I'm going to read from American Predator a little bit because I was too lazy to type out what all they found in his car. But... We'll start with what they found on the front passenger seat. There was one can of AMP energy drink that was still open, one set of school photos of a child, one pair of sneakers, white, one ATM receipt under the driver's side floor mat, reading debit not available, a Sony digital camera containing 200 plus photos of a wedding, one new gray shirt with store tags, packaging, Winchester brand, 
Amber tinted sunglasses, no packaging. One t-shirt with one sleeve cut off. A dark gray fleece Columbia jacket. Several Walmart bags. And a roll of cash in denominations of fives and tens. In the back seat, they found a Walmart receipt stamped with Lufkin, Texas, 4.10 a.m. for March 12th of 2012. One sandwich, one energy drink, one pair of black sunglasses, one partial gallon of water, laundry detergent, one pink backpack. In the trunk, they found one green backpack, one gray DVD case containing pornographic images of a black female. Pornographic DVDs including transgender pornography. An Alaskan Airlines flight confirmation for Israel Keys and daughter to depart Anchorage on March 6th of 2012, arriving in Seattle, Washington at 5.54 a.m., departing Seattle, Washington from 3 30 p.m. and arriving in Las Vegas at 5.56 p.m. Bottles of alcohol still chilled in Walmart bags, a gray fleece jacket, a gray hooded sweatshirt with amber shooting glasses and gray cloth mask in the front pocket, gloves in another pocket, one laptop, one black Samsung cell phone, slider type, battery and SIM card removed, a toiletry kit, one handgun, one pair of binoculars, one black ski mask, and one headlamp. Now that Israel Keys was under arrest, Rayburn could search his wallet. Inside, they found the driver's license belonging to Samantha Cohen and the ATM card. A background check was conducted by Bell and Dahl to see if there were any previous criminal records. Once again, there was nothing. Which was surprising to say the least. A man with such a unique name and no criminal record whatsoever. Kat Nelson followed up with a more thorough background check and still nothing. He didn't even have a speeding ticket. By 9.30 a.m., Bell, a special assignment unit, and SWAT were lined up outside of the Keyes' residence, waiting for the go-ahead to search the house from Dahl, who was currently writing up the clearing for a search warrant. Outside were two sheds, and just parked in front of them was a white Chevy pickup truck with the name Keyes Construction on the side. Another unit went to pick up Keyes' girlfriend from her job at the hospital for questioning. Now, I'm going to leave her name out of this as much as I can, just out of respect for her privacy. She was shocked to learn that Keyes was a suspect in the Samantha Cohen case, and more so, she was very shocked to learn that the house she shared with Keyes and his daughter was going to be searched. Dahl started by asking about Keyes' whereabouts that evening, and his girlfriend stated that he was home with her and his daughter. 
That night, she remembered him coming in and out of the bedroom several times until about 5 a.m. when he went to wake up his daughter. The two were supposed to be heading out on a trip that morning, and they had to get up early to catch their flight. She went forward to state that she was going to meet up with them a few days later down in New Orleans for a cruise they all planned to go on. She then states that there was no way that Keyes was responsible or could have possibly done this. That's what I was wondering is if like she knew he had gone to Alaska and like that whole thing, if he had some clever excuse of it being a business trip or something and like she knew he had gone to Alaska but didn't Well they live know in Alaska. Why. Oh they, they were share... oh my god. I'm thinking <laughs> Texas here and I was like, damn, this is weird. Okay, now I'm on the same yeah. page. Just okay. That makes a lot more so sense. So they live in Alaska. <laughs> they're they're in like the upper ritzy house oh, development. Okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. I was here. I'm thinking like, damn, they're living in Texas and he somehow made it all the way to Alaska. <laughs> okay. never mind. No, they're living in Alaska. <laughs> He's down in Texas right now being arrested. I see. I see. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so she states that there's no possible way that keys was responsible or could have done this. So, Back in Texas, Ganaway and Rayburn are preparing to interrogate Keyes. They'd stop for food along the way, picking up a sandwich for themselves and Keyes in hopes of gaining some form of report. Now, you might be going, why are we buying food for this guy? It's a way to kind of entice people into talking to you in interrogations and getting that trust aspect building. They entered the interrogation room around 3.30 as Henry and a couple other rangers stood behind the two-way mirror observing. Ganaway uh, <clears throat> offered Keyes his sandwich, but he simply eyed it and didn't say anything, marking the first attempt of gaining report as going bad. Rayburn led the questioning, asking Keyes if he knew why he was under arrest, to which Keyes said, I don't think so. Rayburn followed up by stating that they'd found Duan's ATM card in his wallet and Keyes didn't even flinch before stating that he didn't want to talk. This didn't exactly close the door for questioning since Keyes had not said the magic phrase, I want a lawyer. So Rayburn decided to press a little bit more and stated that the FBI has pictures of your truck at the crime scene. To which Keyes, oozing with smug, neurotic tones, responded, If they had that, they would have talked to me already. Damn, he's cocky. Right? Now, to save some time on things, after this, Keyes is led to federal prison to await his arraignment the next day. Dull and Bell are scrambling to make it out of Anchorage and down to Texas for this arraignment. James Cohen was asked if he knew anything about Israel Keys, and he responded that he didn't, and he didn't know any connections that this man may have had to his daughter. He was also told that Keys was under arrest in relation to the case, but told to keep things quiet and not go posting on Facebook about it. Bell and Dahl landed in Houston early the morning of March 14th and were in the interrogation room with Keyes shortly after 1 p.m.-ish from the math that I did. However, it could be around that time. 
Dahl slid the ransom note left with Samantha's photo across the table, stating that whoever did this is a monster. I don't think you're a monster. Now, this is a technique that's typically seen in interrogations to form some type of connection with a perpetrator and kind of get them talking. Keith said nothing for a moment before stating, there's nothing I can do to help you. However, his interest did seem to peak with Dahl in the room. Dahl continued asking, well, how do you explain her boyfriend's ATM card in your wallet? Keys perked up even more. Oh, now I know how I'm involved with this. He responded and began spinning this story of how someone had left a Ziploc bag on the front seat of his pickup truck a few weeks ago. Inside included a cell phone, the ATM card, and the pin was scratched in on the front of it. He then said that he left the driver's side window open because he was a smoker, which they'd surely known from his rental car. He assumed that someone who owed him money for his construction work left the items as payment. Ugh. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Dahl responded with the same thought we are both having right now, Re, and that's a ridiculous story. <laughs> yeah, like, seriously, dude? Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm like, oh, my God, <sighs> really? Anyways, Dahl goes forward to say, we know you did this. We know you took Samantha. Keyes responded with, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, Nelson found a website for Keyes' construction business, which included a capsulated biography. According to Keyes' reporting in this biography, he lived in Colville, Washington from 1995 to 1997 and was a contractor there. That put Keyes in the area between the ages of 17 to 19. Remember this fact for later. The next entry was that Keyes was in the U.S. military from 1998 to 2000, stationed in Fort Lewis, in Washington, Fort Hood in Texas, and Sinia, Egypt. I'm not entirely sure if I'm saying that correctly. Now, Keyes passed with distinction in the Army's pre-Ranger course, which is a merciless 61 days of training that typically flushes out half of the recruits within the first week. Damn. Yeah, I've, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I've definitely heard of that course before. Well, I mean, your eyes bugged out when I said it. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I might be getting confused here because I I definitely don't know that much about the military. (laughs) But (laughs) um, if I'm correct, I thought the Ranger program is almost, um, I don't know if I'd say a survival program, but, you know, kind of like backcountry navigation Mm -hmm. and like living and surviving in the backcountry, like those kinds of skills. So that's why when you said that, I was like, oh my God, like talk about skills you could use as a fucking serial killer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very, very intense. Not the intended usage of those skills, but <laughs> I'm sure he can put those to use doing criminal things. Right. So Nelson also found a passport application that was put in by Keys listing his birthplace as Utah. However, under the question of, have you ever been issued a passport? Keyes wrote, don't remember. Now, who doesn't remember getting a passport? 
Yeah, that process is a pain in the ass to go through, so I'm pretty sure you'd remember doing it yeah. or not. <laughs> I'm like, that's kind of questionable. I'm like, what you hiding yeah. there, friend? According to the biography and further investigation, he had a honorable discharge from the Army in 2001 and moved to a remote part of Washington State for six years before moving to Anchorage in 2007. Now, Keyes's mother was interviewed for further information by Ganaway, to which she gave a little more background information on the family's religious standing. However, Keyes himself was not religious, and his atheism was a great tragedy on her life. She also said that he'd shown up at her house around February 12th, and that's a rough guess because there's no like strict date listed. But she said that this visit had been the weirdest and that there was something obviously wrong with Keyes. Then sometime in the early morning of February 13th, he snuck out of the house like a teenager. Now remind me, when did the um, victim go missing in this case? Since it's been a little while since we recorded part one. (laughs) (laughs) So Samantha went missing on February 1st. Okay, okay. Hmm. So he left a note saying that he was going to go fix a window and hide his guns. The window was in reference to a rental vehicle, but it's unclear on what happened to have the window needing to be fixed. And I don't think as a gun owner, I've ever gone and hid my guns somewhere. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Like, who says, I'm going to go hide my guns? Like, who are you hiding your guns from? Right? (laughs) What's going on? I'm a little concerned. When reading this, she kind of just, like, brushed over that fact, too. Like, she was like, oh, Keys has had guns since he was a boy. I'm not worried about that. And, like, I could, like, feel probably the investigator. Like, if I put myself in their shoes, I'd be like, that's not what I'm worried about, ma'am. I'm worried about why is he hiding them. <laughs> exactly. And, like, that's the thing is I'm just, like, you know, the fact that you own guns, like, I'm not concerned about that. It's the fact that he's so concerned about hiding the guns. It's yeah. like, wh- wh- why are we hiding? What's why are, going on here? Why are we squirreling guns away, sir? What what yes. are we doing? <laughs> What's going on? Now, I have some questions, sir. <laughs> Now, there's some loose connection with the family and Keys for the next couple of days with him basically wanting help getting his vehicle out of mud and a couple other things, and then him going completely silent when the family asks for his location. A little strange. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the 15th when Keys contacted them after running out of gas did they see him again. And from what I read, he was driving like a blue Kia Soul at this time. Okay. And it was spattered with mud, and he just looked disheveled. Apparently, he had an eight in the two days that he'd been gone. And he was very much out of character in accordance with all of his family members. Like, this isn't the guy that they knew. So, Keyes was transported back to Anchorage by U.S. Marshals on March 30th, and Payne had gained news that Keyes was ready to talk. But he had two demands. Keyes wanted the death penalty off the table. And second, he wanted very little information to be released to the media, 
as he didn't want his child to know about anything that was going on. Now, the team, Payne, Bell, Godin, and Nelson all met to discuss their approach for this first sit-down with Keys. Unfortunately, Dahl had to miss this as she was away during the time, but she did plan to sit in on a conference call. Unfortunately, the top federal prosecuting office in Alaska had other ideas. Israel Keyes was to be interrogated at the U.S. Attorney's Office and not the FBI office. And Kevin Feltz would be leading the interrogation alongside of his deputy, Frank Russo. The FBI would simply be his backup. Mm. Now, this itself is prosecutional misconduct, meaning that if it was to be discovered by the court systems, the case could be thrown out. Second, the Office of the U.S. Attorneys was not established with the same high-tech CCTV or audio recording equipment that the FBI office had. Third, a prosecutor cannot elicit a confession the same way that an officer can, meaning all leverage that's typically used to distract, distress, or basically like push an individual to a confession cannot be used mm. because the prosecutor is in the room. Mm. So you may be asking, why is this being permitted? Well, you want the prosecution on your side. And from what I could discover, Feldis was the only one in Anchorage at the time and probably the best. So, unfortunately, things shifted. And mm. that all comes from American Predator too. Please don't sue me. <laughs> so, at... 5.48 p.m. Friday, March 30th, the team sat down with keys in the U.S. Attorney's office. Bell sat a small tape recorder on the table and hit play, and the story began. Shortly after 7 p.m. on February 1st, 2012, Israel Keys pulled his white Chevy truck out of his driveway and drove to the Home Depot on Tudor Road, 15 minutes away. He'd made a similar drive several other times earlier that week, curious of the comings and goings around common grounds. After several nights of watching, Keyes decided that he was going to rob it, but he'd wait until closing time, so there's no other customers there. Keyes first stopped at the car's grocery store, where he picked up a Snickers bar and a pack of wild and mild cigars. He then made his way back to the Home Depot parking lot in the parking lot that it shared with the IHOP and parked his car. He then grabbed his coffee mug, a pair of plastic zip ties, a headlamp, and a 22 Taurus revolver. He stuck a small police scanner in his ear, which I'm presuming is like one of those headphone pieces that you see in mm. all the movies. Yeah. Got out of his truck and walked west, crossing the street towards the kiosk. He wandered the parking lot for a few minutes to ensure that there was nobody else there. At this point, the investigators stopped him, asking what his connection was to Samantha. When had he first met her? He responded with, never met her, never even seen her before. The team, to say the least, was surprised by that. 
they proceeded to ask why he chose Common Grounds. And he responded, because they're open late. Keyes then paused as he wanted to see what evidence they had. Now, this exchange is rather painful to go through as the prosecutor treads like a thin line with the evidence because technically he's not supposed to have his hands on too much. So he basically told Keyes that not all the photos were printed off, which isn't the wisest thing to do because you want to say like, oh, there's too much to go through and the FBI is working their hardest to get them all done. Like, you don't want to tell them that like, oh, it's not printed off yet. Because that makes it feel like, oh, you actually don't have anything. Yeah. So this made much of the investigating team anxious and Feldus asked if Keyes would prefer telling his story backwards. Keyes said that he could do that, but he didn't know if he was going to go into the story blow by blow. He then asked them to pull up a map of the Palmer area. He then started to point out that they'd probably found proof of a shack on his property, and they'd probably already found evidence of it in one of his other sheds. Now, this confused people as there were only two shacks on the property, but it seemed like he was talking about a whole new one. Then he goes forward to say that on the first day of ice fishing, he drove out to Mananuska Lake, parked off the highway, and dragged his sled far along the surface of the ice. He set up his shack out in the middle and cut a 8 by 8 hole in the ice, covered it with plywood, and left. Keyes then mentions how he had his truck that day and that they don't let you park down by the lake. He then goes forward to say, I couldn't pull down more than, I don't know, maybe 150 pounds at a time in that sled. So that's why I had to make three trips and you're going to need five different bags. Fields asked what was in each of the trips that he made down there. Keyes responds with, um, the first day was the head, legs, and arms. To which Fields asks of Samantha Cohen, to which Keyes responds, yes. Oh. Fields pulls up a Google Earth street view of the Keyes' home, to which Keyes was impressed and chuckled about how recent the photos were. Keyes showed around the back of the house of where they could find the gray conduit he used to pull the sled and the wood for the building of the ice shack and steel bar that he used to cut the ice, a serrated utility knife with a yellow handle, and the blood on the floor of one of the walls of the shed now sitting in his driveway. So there was another shed which was now dismantled. Fields decided to plow on with this confession and started showing photos of stuff the FBI had seized from the wrong shed. Keyes was flustered by this, noting that these photos were from the wrong shed and weren't from the shed that he was originally talking about. To which he looked up at everyone and said, did I just tell you guys all of this for nothing? Ooh. <laughs> to which, yes, you did, Keyes. Yes, you did. He does go on to try to like, play this off as like a joke, probably for his own sanity of like not believing that the investigators missed that much. So Payne and Bell try to get Keyes back to establishing a timeline for Samantha again to which Keyes continues to talk about his side of the story from forming some kind of a trance while he does. 
Now, we're back over to the Common Grounds kiosk. They asked him to come back over that way. So he had walked around the Common Grounds kiosk and was unable to see who was working inside, but presumed that it was a young woman. She either didn't have a car or she didn't park close by. He then walked to the window, sat down his thermos, and asked for an Americano. He now got a good look at her. A young, pretty thing working alone, as he stated. She made his drink as he stood at the window, running through his plan of how he was going to rob the store. There was a hitch, though, as there was a car that was idling nearby behind him, and someone was obviously watching him, making his plan more challenging to go through. Samantha handed Keyes his Americano, and he pulled a gun on her, stating, This is a robbery. Samantha put her hands in the air and backed up, terrified. Turn off the lights, Keyes is instructed. She didn't scream, but flicked off the lights and ran to the back of the trailer to turn off the last of them before returning to the window. She didn't hit a panic button during that time, as Keyes would have heard it in his earpiece. Keyes instructed her to give him all the cash from the register, and after she'd emptied it, she then told her to get on the floor. Keyes broke his focus at this point, to tell the room that he was feeling invincible. She was scared and doing everything that he said. He wanted to see where it would go. He then shifted back into this altered state. He then waited, and as the idling car finally drove off, Keyes told Samantha to get on her knees, and he bound her wrists with zip ties. He then proceeded to jump in the window. He asked her where her car was, and she responded with, I don't have one, but my dad's coming to get me in half an hour. I, I mean, he's coming to get me any minute. This made Keyes pause for a minute as he didn't know which was the truth. Did you hit an alarm? Don't lie to me. I have the police scanner in my ear. I'll know. No, Samantha replied. If I hear the police being dispatched here, I'll kill you, Keyes said. I didn't, I swear. Samantha responded. During this point, investigators make mention of how Keyes' tone changed and he started to sound both ashamed and enraptured with the story, and his voice deepened and went quieter. Ugh. To which I watch some of these like interrogation videos. You can find some on YouTube. Like there's a six-hour one that I was privy to watching. He is very, I wouldn't say smooth talking, but when he gets into this like trance state of talking about these crimes, it sends chills down my spine. Ugh. He then took a moment to ask her her name, shut the windows, bar them, and took some napkins and shoved them in her mouth. He then said that they were going for a little walk. As Keyes led Samantha out the back door and across the parking lot, he found a Canon camera in newish condition on the ground. Had to be worth a couple hundred dollars, and he took it as a good omen. As he bent over to pick it up, Samantha broke free and ran. He tackled her and regained control by pressing the 22 against her ribs, threatening to kill her if she tried to escape again. Samantha nodded, understanding what Keyes was telling her, and Keyes told her, stumble around a bit and lean against me like you're drunk. 
Keys then took her back to his truck where a few other people were lingering around a Chevy Suburban right in front of his vehicle. He now relied on the fear he'd sowed into Samantha to keep her quiet. He cleared off the clutter from his passenger seat as Samantha watched the strangers in front of her climb into the Chevy and drive away. He then put her in the truck, placed a seatbelt around her, and rounded his vehicle to the driver's side and drove away. He told her they were going for a little drive and that he was going to hold her for ransom and that she'd be fine, pulling the napkins out of her mouth. Samantha insisted that her family didn't have any money, but Keyes persisted that the community will come together and they'll get it. Keyes drove out of the parking lot and notes in the interview that in the drive to the secondary location, a patrol car had stopped next to them at a red light. Samantha seemed to be working out her options, looking over at the vehicle, and Keyes was working out what he could do when the light turned green and the patrol car pulled away. He then drove to an undisclosed park in Lynn Avery, which was supposedly down by its baseball fields. There were apparently more witnesses there, giving Samantha yet another chance to escape, but she sat quietly in the truck watching the cross-country skiers load up their car and drive away. Keyes waited a minute to make sure that they wouldn't double it back before getting out of his vehicle and pulling his tools out of the back seat, tossing them into the bed of his truck. He then covered the seat with drop cloths and tucked them in. This was a way for him to limit the amount of DNA transferred into his vehicle by Samantha. Keyes then had her lay down in the back seat and secured her wrists to the seat belt and covered her with drop cloths. Now, when he got back into the driver's seat, he was starting to think of what he could do next. It was close to 11 p.m. when he decided to go grab a burner phone from Walmart. He needed to make the ransom demand. Upon arriving at the parking lot, he had second thoughts and decided it would be better to return to the kiosk and grab Samantha's phone. So he threatened Samantha again when he got out of the vehicle, stating that if it looks like she's been trying to do anything while he was gone, he's not going to be happy. Keys went back into the kiosk and grabbed Samantha's cell phone, then noticed a few stray zip ties on the floor and grabbed those too. Leaving the kiosk, he remembered that Samantha's keys were still inside and figured he was going to need those too. So he went back in and grabbed them before leaving the kiosk a third and final time. To which Payne does make mention that if they had watched the surveillance tape a little bit more, they would have realized that there was more going on there and that this individual had made a second round back and they would have definitely known at that point that Samantha was not just simply missing, but kidnapped. Uh, So at some point between this and moving forward, there is a instance where Samantha does have to go relieve herself and go to the bathroom and Keys does tie a rope around her neck like a dog and basically leads her out into the trees to relieve herself. We won't go too far into that, but it just gives you an insight of how cruel he was. Wow. She's obviously already scared senseless to the point where with witnesses around, she wasn't 
you know, uh, didn't have the courage to speak up. She was too scared. And so at that point, like, I doubt she's really going to try to make an escape if she's already that terrified. Yeah. And there's like moments where he says like, oh, we were laughing and we were smoking cigarettes and stuff. And like for her to be able to like smoke a cigarette, like obviously her hands aren't free. So it's just him putting one to her lips. And that has to be absolutely terrifying as well. Yeah, definitely. And also, like, not wanting to upset this person who is obviously deranged Mm -hmm. and God knows what he wants to do with you as the victim. So, I mean, at that point, I feel like if you're that terrified, you're going to do whatever you have to to keep that person happy in the situation so that they don't flip a switch even more and do something even worse to you. Exactly. And it's theorized that it might have been a way for her to kind of, like, tap into his humanity and possibly let her go oh yeah i didn't think about that that's a good point so very very smart on her behalf because most people don't think about that in these instances and that might yeah. be the one thing that lets you go free Oof. so Keys sent text messages to people who had been calling samantha in the last couple hours her boyfriend and her boss He wrote to them as if Samantha was incredibly pissed off. And after that, he pulled the battery out of the phone so it couldn't be tracked. Finally, Keyes drove into his driveway. It was around midnight now. And according to him, and it's not clear if he's boasting now or if there really were neighbors outside, but according to Keyes, there were a couple neighbors walking their dogs at this time, which is a very odd time to be walking your dog. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, like, dang, he's walking their dog at that time. <laughs> but also part of me is like, okay, it's winter in Alaska. Maybe they're in that, like, 30 days and night scenario where it's uh, like you don't really have a full sense of time. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. So he left Samantha in the truck while he puts his tool rack back on the tail end of his vehicle. I think it's a little ballsy taking her back to his place, but I guess if he feels comfortable with what time of night it is that it's nobody's not going gonna to be, be easier. There. Yeah. yeah, nobody's going to be around. That I guess he just feels like at this point he's past the most risky part of it in terms of being found out. Yeah, so when the coast finally clears... Keyes moves Samantha to the third shed that was on his property as it had already been set up earlier with two heaters and a big tarp with a radio. And this was happening around 1 to 2 a.m. Once she was now inside the shed, Keyes said that he was going to make her comfortable, but to remember that he had a police scanner in his ear. So if any information about a disturbance comes from over here, he's going to be back before the cops would get here. He then turned up the radio, drowning out any noise that she could have possibly made with heavy metal music. See, but then I'm like, wouldn't cranking the heavy metal music up at two in the morning potentially bring police to your door about neighbors complaining about it? Mm -hmm. But maybe not. I don't know. I guess it depends on, um, especially if we're thinking Alaska, if he lives more in the backcountry kind of area where there's not neighbors right next door, maybe he can get away with that. Because I was thinking if it's, like, uh, a suburban neighborhood kind of situation, you generally have houses really close to each other and people would get upset about things like that. But, yeah, if you're more spaced out, then it might not be a big problem. Yeah, and my thought on that, too, is, like, going back to he'd only sleep, like, a couple hours before continuing driving when he was driving from Las Vegas to Texas. Mm -hmm. 
maybe he's just a night owl and yeah. this is like a regular occurrence that he does blast a little bit of heavy metal music, but it might not be loud enough to like upset your neighbors. That's true, yeah. But it's loud enough that it drowns out anything else going on, like hammering, building, because he is a contractor after all. Yeah, that's true. He then asked Samantha about her ATM card, which she shared with Duan. She told him that it was in their truck and either in the glove box or the visor. He then told Samantha to give her home address and a description of the truck she shared with Duan. Keys checked in on his girlfriend, who was now finally asleep at 2.30 a.m. It was just two and a half hours before Keys and his daughter needed to leave. He then takes his girlfriend's car to Samantha's, parks it a few blocks away, and walks to the truck parked in Samantha's driveway. He uses the keys that he'd taken from her and accesses the passenger door and has a look inside. The card was right where she said it would be. And as he was getting ready to leave, Duan came outside. Not knowing what this guy might do, he stood there for a moment, but he also had a knife on him and he'd use it. Suddenly, Duan turns around and goes back inside the house. Keys couldn't tell if this was simply from fright or maybe intimidation, but he decided to leave. He made his way to the ATM after this, but forgot to ask Samantha for the pin. So he had to go back to the house and ask her for it. He then scratched it on the surface of the card and went back out to check it. There was 94 cents in the account. That was all. Keys returned to the house around 3 a.m. and scheduled a ride at 5 a.m. sharp for his trip with his daughter. Keys made the comment that he was running late and laughed as he did. Payne and Bell strategized for a moment and shifted from the story to the proof of life copy of the ransom photo and note that was posted in the Anchorage Daily News, dated for February 13th. Is she alive in this photo? Fields asked. Nope. Keys responded. Mm. Was she alive when you got back from your trip on the 18th? Again. Nope. Was she alive when you left? When I left? No. That evolved very quickly, it seems. Because it seems like, at least from what you're saying, it sounds to me like it started out as just a bank robbery. That that was originally his plan. But then he got cocky and decided, you know, maybe I can get some more money with a ransom. But then doing all this the night before he's going on this trip right and early with his daughter, like, that just seems very rushed on his end. Because now he's put himself in a really tight spot where he has this victim that he needs to do something with and I doubt he's gonna just leave her there while he goes on his trip and he doesn't really have a good excuse to cancel the trip or anything so I think he's put himself in a really bad spot there of getting a little too greedy about getting more money and then now having this victim that he needs to do something with and somehow still make it out of all that without getting caught now, I don't know if that was really his true motivation was just money, since as we continue through his case, it sounds like there may be some other shit going on here. But just based on what you've said so far, that's what it almost seems like to me, as he just like majorly fucked up by getting too cocky and too greedy and then couldn't back out once he was like too deep in it. After this, Keyes decided that he didn't want to talk anymore. 
And he wanted specifically to tell the rest of the story to Dahl and only Dahl. Additionally, he had other demands for the rest of the details regarding Samantha's cause of death. The first was that he didn't want his girlfriend's house being torn apart anymore. And she was not to be talked to about this as she had nothing to do with it. Stating specifically, obviously you have no reason to trust me, but I can tell you right now, there's no one who knows me or has ever really known me. I'm two different people. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you is me. Is it normal? Well, normal is not really a great way to put it in cases like this, but I was just going to say like, is it unusual? I guess is a better way of putting it for a criminal to say, I only want to speak to this one person. Like, is that a weird thing? Or no. is that something that happens a lot? No, there's, there's specific cases and typically with people that have more of that demeanor that keys does, like they're, they want to talk to one person usually. And if you noticed when he first spoke with doll, he was getting somewhat peaked in interest. Yeah. So there's typically a individual with cases like this that they tend to like lean towards more depending okay. on an MO or what they are comfortable with. Okay. Russo asked keys, how long have you been two different people? Keyes responded, a long time, 14 years. Dahl returned to Anchorage on April 1st and sat across Keyes as he continued his story. So we're back in the shed. He had prepped the space a couple days earlier, but he had no specific person or plan in mind. But he had been looking around the Huffman area because it was full of coffee stands that were open late and mostly staffed by teenage girls. When he'd gotten back from stealing the ATM card, Samantha was composed. She asked if everything had worked out and if he'd reached her dad. Keyes said that everything worked out fine, knelt down and unscrewed the rope from the wall, cutting her cables and ties too, allowing her for a possible brief moment where she could believe that she was being set free as he promised before Keyes restrained her again. Ugh... So different from the previous day that he states that he left the shack to go back in and check on his girlfriend who was still awake for returning to the shed. There's a little discrepancy in his story there. But moving forward, after he had checked in on his girlfriend, he returns to the shed where he raped Samantha twice. Oh. She then asked if he was going to kill her, and he didn't respond. Mm -mm. Instead, he put on a pair of leather gloves and began to strangle her. He then stabbed her once below the right shoulder blade and returned to the house to shower. Keys then woke his daughter, and while she was getting ready, he returned to the shed again. The space heaters were left on to slow the rigor mortis from setting in, and he rolled Samantha's body into a tarp and hid her remains in a lower cabinet. Then he turned off the heaters, double-locked the shed doors, and called his cab. Fields asked, what was your plan? You're getting on a plane and her body was still in your shed? What were you thinking? Keyes responded with, I was thinking it was 20 degrees outside and I didn't have anything to worry about. 
Moreover, he knew how the police would respond since he'd been listening in on the police scanner a lot recently and stated that it felt like by the time anybody figured out what had actually happened, the trail would already be cold. Oh, that sounds a lot more fucking calculated than I was expecting. I don't like that. Yeah. And this is kind of a point where other investigators that are in the room are starting to notice that he's he's smarter than what he sees. Yeah, this is like a lot more like strategizing than I was anticipating. Because mm-hmm. at first it came more across as like a rushed case where it was kind of a panic, like a cocky and then a panic moment. And this doesn't seem like that now. I was going to ask, though, because that was my first thought when they were asking about, like, oh, you're just going to go on vacation while there's a body in your shed? I was thinking, like, uh, how long is it going to be gone? Because <laughs> isn't there going to be, like, you know, decomposition leads to some factors that might be noticeable. Uh, but the, the temperature thing, I guess that might save his ass there. I don't know. Yeah. The body was preserved because it's cold uh. enough that it just froze. When Keyes returned from his trip, he went to the shed to assess the body. He began taking apart the shed from the inside out on February 21st, dismantling cabinets, shelvings, lights, and chopping everything he could into firewood. By February 22nd, Around 1 to 2 a.m., he built a fire in the living room fireplace and burned everything that Samantha had touched. Mmm, that's super calculated. Like, he's really thinking this through of anything Mm -hmm. that could be traced back to him. He went back to the shed and took a large piece of plastic and tacked it to the floor and along the walls before lifting her body into the air using a rope pulley system, which was tied around her wrists. He then proceeded to thaw out her remains and have sex with them. Oh my god. His daughter came knocking at the shed door looking for him at some time. It wasn't disclosed if it was during the necrophilia or after, but it was now morning. And he told her to go back inside and eat her breakfast. He'd be there in a minute. So, is this before he dismantled the shed or has he now relocated so what's going on is that he's dismantled basically the inside. Oh, okay. okay. So it's just her and tarps in there and then okay. basically like a box keeping the elements out. I see. Okay. Gotcha. So Keyes cleaned himself up and went back inside to get his daughter ready for school. Once she was gone, it was time to establish the ransom note. At some time, he had also gone to get tote bags from Home Depot a carbon ribbon and paper for a typewriter he'd found at Goodwill, a sewing kit, and 10 pounds of fishing line. During this outing, he also pulled a copy of the Anchorage Daily News dated for February 13th, 2012, out of the car's supermarket dumpster located at the back of the store. Dahl asked him why he'd chosen the 13th, and Keyes stated that he wasn't in Anchorage on the 13th. After this, he went back to the shed, taking his girlfriend's and Samantha's makeup that she had kept in her purse and used the rest of the night to get some makeup on Samantha's face. Oh my god. So fucked up. 
However, makeup wasn't giving the expression that Keyes wanted for the ransom photo. She had been dead for 21 days at this point, and her skin was starting to slack. Oh, yeah, it's been a little while, boy. <laughs> oh. At first, he tried super glue to get her forehead to kind of like even out and her eyes to stay open, but that didn't work. So he moved on to the needle and thread situation. Using a big curved needle and some of the fishing line he'd bought, he sewed her eyes open. He then held her head up and took test photos before finally coming to one that he liked. He cut the corners off because his arm was showing a identifying mark and also several freckles, which he thought could be linked back to him. He then placed the photo at the park under the lost dog poster around 6 a.m. and sent the message to Samantha's boyfriend. Then, over the course of three separate days, took Samantha's body to the Manitusk Lake and disposed of it. Key's initial confession was marked for the 30th of March, and an FBI dive team was reached out to to investigate the claims of Samantha's body being in the Manitusk Lake. The team landed in Anchorage on Sunday afternoon and were greeted by many signs that flooded the community saying, We're praying for you, Samantha. On April 2nd, the dive team began setting up around noon, cutting a hole in the three-foot-thick ice and dropping a sonar down to get a sense of the lake's bottom. Like Keyes had said, there were five distinct targets pinging. They then sent down a four-propeller ROV, which would transmit images back to them on the surface. Once at the lake's floor, it immediately hit something a foot. It was at 4.42 when the team began to set up and conduct a recovery, and by 7 p.m., the dive team was in the water, taking upwards to 15 minutes to reach the bottom of the lake where Samantha's remains were wired and weighed to ensure that they would not resurface. Each of the remains was found in close proximity to the other, and after waiting for a white pop-up shelter to shield the media's view, they began to lift Samantha out of the water. Waterproof chain of custody forms were filled out, and by 9 p.m., people began to leave the scene. The FBI dive team had been there for only around 36 hours, and as they were leaving, they watched the signs change to our warmest condolences for the Cohen family. Samantha's body had been recovered, and her story was told. The community focused its emotional attention on James and Duane and memorialized her all-too-short life. For investigators, this was just the beginning, as Keyes told them, I've got lots more stories to tell. Damn. And that's where we're ending part two. Ugh, I'm a little surprised, too, that, like, he is so open to, like, saying there's more like he could have just left it there i feel like and they may have not known any different and thought that this was just a one-time thing if he hadn't said anything so i don't know if at this point it's just like a like some sort of confidence thing of he feels like he's bragging about all these things he he did and got away with and how it makes him feel or whatever but obviously he's one fucked up man but yeah with because i've been digging into this case for what like one two months now and that's only like to touch the surface because this is a 
individual that does pique my interest when it comes to serial killers. Like, I think he's absolutely fascinating. But there's there's a line where you've had too much keys. I've had too much keys. Um, <laughs> but I think at this point, it's more of a bragging thing going on, but it might also be he wants to give some closure to families. Hmm. It's interesting that somebody like that, that's so heartless and disconnected from humanity, would still see the value in giving closure to families if he was capable of doing all this. But it also might just be like he wants to toy with investigators and that's true. Prolong a death death sentence. Yeah. That's something that commonly happens with these types of cases. It's, Oh, I have more information, but you got to hold off on killing me, Mm. but we'll go more into that with part three. We are ending part two here today. How are you feeling, (laughs) Ray? You're just staring me down right now. I can feel you staring into my soul. (laughs) I mean, that was fairly disturbing. (sighs) Yeah, I don't know. Um, I definitely knew by the commentary of us leading up to recording this episode (laughs) that he was very fucked up. And to expect it to be pretty dark, but whoo, yeah, he uh, he went to much farther extremes than I was expecting in terms of just what all he was trying to accomplish there, and then the terrible things he did to her, the unspeakable things he did to her, and just his personality through it all. It's it's both disgusting, but also just. Like, disturbing and also a little terrifying. (laughs) Because it's just... How can a person do these things and then just seem so calm and confident about it? It's just... I don't know. And I don't want to get off on too much of a side rant. But, (laughs) I mean... (laughs) A long time now for my whole life, I've definitely... And I don't know, it might be a morbid curiosity... Um, but I've always been interested in, like, what makes the human mind break, like, in a mm-hmm. sense where you, and I'm not trying to say that in a rude way regarding mental illness. I'm definitely a huge advocate for mental health and all that, so that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, but more just in a case like this where, I mean, there's no other way I feel like you could describe it in this case, because obviously this person is not right. <laughs> he's crossed way too many boundaries to just say like oh he just needs some therapy like no we are past that point we are so far past that point Mm -hmm. and so like I said maybe it's a morbid curiosity I have I've I've always wondered like what does it take for a person to become that twisted like is it trauma is it they were born that way like and then as a scientist, I'm like, you know, I'm not a fan of chemistry, but I also kind of want to be like, and what is going on in their brain, like biologically and chemically that makes them behave the way they do, which is an oddity compared to the population as a whole. Like, it's just yeah. that 
terrible, terrible curiosity that, like, I don't really know that I want to know because it's just so disturbing thinking that these people exist and have done things like this. But at the same time, it just makes mm -hmm. me wonder, like, but why? Why do they do these things? I mean, obviously they have their own reasons in their mind of why they're doing these things, but, like, just seeing, like, what was it that led to this person being the way they are because obviously the majority of human beings are not like this <laughs> for good reason so like why is this person like this i've always like wondered those things like what are the underlying causes of a person being this twisted and i don't know if we have the answer to that yet but so there is some like i wouldn't say answers but theories behind it so a lot of it has to do with head trauma hmm. as a young child interesting or abusive situations as a young child. So being in a household that you're regularly being sexually, physically, or emotionally abused might cause a break. And honestly, you can kind of see that with the cycle of violence where people have been abused previously. They either continue the abuse going forward or they are the abused going forward. So... When it comes down to when we talk about serial killers, and this is probably a better question for a forensic psychologist, which I am not, um, you could really see like where maybe another family member kind of would abuse this individual and ultimately really messed with their psyche moving forward out of childhood and put them in a place where it's like, okay, well now I can only unfortunately get off when I am raping somebody and when I rape somebody they typically tell on me which means that I can't have witnesses mm. afterwards and you got that theory of escalation moving forward the other one with head trauma has to do with more of like how the brain works and how it develops moving forward and it makes it like difficult for an individual to process what is right and what is wrong okay yeah, that makes more sense to me. I don't know off the top of my head the age, but I remember reading somewhere a long time ago that, like, your brain's not fully developed until you're in your... I can't remember mm -hmm. where in your 20s, but somewhere in your 20s, I think, like, late, mid so to late 20s. So, for women, it's around, like, 21, and for men, it's, like, 24 or 25. Okay, okay. Yeah, so that definitely clarifies things a little bit in terms of I can see how something happening in childhood could be detrimental to the, the development of the brain into adulthood since your mm -hmm. brain isn't finished developing at that young of an age so it makes sense that you know if something goes completely awry there that could lead to problems later on from a biological standpoint an anatomical one absolutely so there's that. And then there's, of course, like you could see warning signs coming forward with these other types of aggressions happening in the household or past trauma happening with the McDonald's triad, which is setting fires, bedwetting and hurting or killing small animals. Okay. And then that usually forms into the dark triad, which I don't have in front of me right now, but I believe it's narcissism, uh, mentalism, and possibly abuse, but I'm not entirely sure. I'll make sure to grab that for part three. What was the but men mentalism? It's like egotistical framed, oh, like okay. bad behavior. Okay. So it's like a step up from narcissism. Okay. It was very much like discovered and kind of like put into that frame after Ted Bundy. 
Oh, okay. So that's definitely a more recent research that's come out. Mm -hmm. Pertains back to the McDonald's triad and how it develops moving forward into adulthood. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely, this case has given me chills for sure. Oh, yeah, that's just, I don't know, there's just, it's just one of those things where it's difficult to process it. It's so dark. Mm-hmm. It's hard to put words to it and hard to, like, also emotionally process it because this is a thing that never, ever, ever should have ever happened to anyone and just, like, I don't even want to try to imagine what Samantha went through. That just is horrifying. And on a side note, like I said at the beginning, a lot of my research does come from the American Predator book by Maureen Callahan. And I went through over 200 pages of this book for this episode alone. And I can tell you right now, my research only reaches like 10, 11 pages with single space font at size 11 (laughs) which if that's any side of things for you guys that means that there's a lot being left out and a lot of stuff that I didn't squeeze in personal interviews with keys and more of how he behaves in the actual setting of these interviews so I highly advise if you guys are interested in keys obviously stick around for part three because that will be coming next week but Definitely go out and buy this book because this is something that you're not going to get with reading just regular news sites and digging on the web. This is something that goes even deeper and into the background of the investigation process for this case. Awesome. Well, thank you for pointing our listeners towards some great resources if they would like to learn more. As always, uh, check out our references Katie will have the book listed in there and I'm sure we'll have some all some other references in there if you're interested in learning more but yeah definitely go check out those resources Katie pointed out if you are interested in learning more about this individual and like she said come back next week we definitely would love to have you next week and come bear witness to this with me <laughs> so we, he's like don't leave don't me leave here me don't make me the only one that has to listen to this <laughs> Oh, yeah, after this episode, now I'm just like, oh, God, like, what's the next episode? We can fill a whole nother episode with him. I don't want a whole nother episode with him. This sounds really scary. I could fill another four episodes with him if I wanted to. Uh, if I wanted to. Don't like it at all. <laughs> but for the sake of our poor listeners, I I will definitely point out some of the cases that he confesses to next episode and then some of the ones that he's believed to be linked with however we won't be going too much in detail because we will probably have a revisiting of keys in the future with some other cases great lovely (laughs) you're welcome thank my mom she wanted this (laughs) (sighs) yeah that's some real horror fuel right there well if you guys have made it to the end of this episode please 
treat yourself. Go get some ice cream, you know. Take care of yourself. <laughs> ice cream makes Take a bubble bath. Better. <laughs> ice cream makes everything better. <laughs> I wish. Watch some happy TV. I'm going to go watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I'm still not done with it. I'm like on season three after I told myself I was going to watch it and listen in on um, the rewatcher that the girls from Morbid are doing and I was like yeah I can watch like an episode a week and I'm like I can't I am just burning through this right now I'm on season four right now <laughs> I'm gonna be so sad when it ends <laughs> <laughs> but guys definitely if you listen to this episode take care of yourself definitely do a mental check-in I know it's a little different listening than it is like actually researching but Definitely do a mental check-in with yourself and take care of yourselves because this is some dark stuff, even for us and poor Ree, who has to listen. <laughs> she has no other choice. Yeah, I can't tune out this week, listeners. I can't turn it off. <laughs> I'll come back in a couple weeks when we're done with Israel Kids. <laughs> Somebody else can listen to Katie about Israel Kids. Uh, just grab Watson and put him in the seat be like it's your turn yo. I have sat through two episodes already he's gonna be like how many are left you know you're gonna be like I don't know she said she can fill four more it's never gonna end we're just gonna be the Israel yeah. Keys podcast now I can't do it no, I won't I won't do that to you I won't do that to you or or our listeners but I do have quite a few cases that he does relate to unfortunately and like I said we'll We'll look at ones that he's been more open with confessing to next time and some that he really hasn't, but has definitely had like dead giveaways that he is involved. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are you haunted too?